And there's this idea that if everybody goes to this meeting and everybody does this and everybody does that, the implication is that those are the questions worth answering in your business. But the secret, the secret is that it's not. That the question you need to answer is where's the next million in revenue coming from? That is the question that needs answered. And I think that's where the bravery, the excitement, and the fear come in is like, you don't know all the time and you got to figure it out. And that's your job as a founder. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right. Take four. Here we go. <laughs> We're in person. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA podcast. We are in person. We are in Spain. Let's get this thing rolling. How are you doing today, Ian? Sipping on the Viche, the oh, Viche yeah. Catalan. That's it right. is uh, the most inspiring sparkling water you can find on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Unofficial, Look, official sponsor of the TMBA podcast. That's Salty, right. Salty, goodness, bubbly. We're feeling refreshed. We're feeling crispy. We've got a lot of topics to cover today. Let's do it. All right. First things first, we are back in Barcelona for the first time in a long time. How does it feel to be on the ground in Europe for the summer? Feels great, man. You've spent more time in Europe than I have recently. You kind of blew this trip for me because you showed up early, earlier in the year, I should say. So I'd say your level of excitement is a little low for me. I like came in hot. <laughs> You're like, yeah, man, I've kind of already been here this year. I'm kind of going to be here after you too. I'm so. in my routine. Yeah, <laughs> Good for you. I'm happy to be here. Probably yeah. happier than you are. But yeah, we're getting a lot of good rides in. We're getting a lot of good work in. We're back at the same co-working space. It feels good. You know it what does. I mean? Like the same people are at the front office. Like it just feels like home. Yeah. somebody's good to be back. Somebody walked up to me the other day and they were like, why are you, you clearly are missing some IQ points because you go to Barcelona in the summer. Do you know how hot it is down there? <laughs> and I'm like, everything's relative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I can walk down the street at noon in Barcelona and not fear for my health. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> totally. One thing that's really different about being here in the summer and one of the best parts about being here is that there's so many founders, especially in our community and our listenership that come to Europe for the summer. And so, yeah, just got a text from a listener a few minutes ago saying, hey, let's go grab a coffee. People are coming through town. There's that vibrancy of like, we're all kind of on a little bit of a vacation holiday together, swapping notes down at the co-working center, or doing fun stuff on the weekends. And so I'm just really looking forward to that idea exchange, building relationships with people that, you know, we know and hang out with occasionally in Texas or sometimes at DCBKK. But now being here for the full summer, we have an opportunity to really spend some time with people. That's the best part for me. Can I share with you a depressing travel story real quick? before? Oh, we... yeah. Today, by the way, we're going to talk about two things that are huge challenges to overcome for seven plus figure founders. We're going to call them the wheel of despair. Well, that's a good one. And the paradox of growth. Okay, so we're going to get to that in a minute, but I just want to touch on a few things at the top. The first is, if I sound depressed, is because you're looking at a guy who recently got a negative Airbnb review. Oh boy. And I want to... <laughs> I've had one of these before. You know, I 
consider myself to be a relatively robust emotional person, but this shattered me. <laughs> it shattered me. I couldn't get any work done. I didn't want to eat. <laughs> I had to get to the core of the problem. So I want to share this with the audience to see what the general opinion is out there. Do you need to take out the trash or wash the dishes in your Airbnb? In this era of service fees, I mean... I paid the service fee. $250 service fees, whatever that is, $300 cleaning fees. Uh -huh. I have a maid. I know what a cleaning fee costs, a real cleaning fee costs. I also know how dirty I am. That's why I found it a little <laughs> bit offensive that these fees are so high. Okay, I'm, I'm starting to get upset. Continue on. That uh, was interesting. I mean, I just had a deep cultural experience. Long story short, I got the review taken down. I had this kind of amazing like meeting of the cultures conversation in the Airbnb chat with my host in Paris about Airbnb has a gray area about this and the expectations weren't set. Of course, I've got a litany of excuses. I don't consider myself to be a messy person, but the apartment ran out of trash bags. And hey, I ran out of time running for my train and I paid the service fee and I met the maid. So I knew she was in the apartment for three hours after every turnover. Anyway, hey, it was a big psychodrama, but I'm curious in the audience, do you consider it disrespectful to leave a few dirty dishes or to not take out the trash when you leave an Airbnb? Oh man, I kid you not, I got the same negative review last time I was in Malaga mm. because like the trash situation was like hard to figure out. And I like, I just put it all around the trash can on the way out and figure out what my profile is. You can go read it today. Like I didn't bother taking it down, but I think it's the only negative review on my profile as well. I also took it equally as hard as you. But <laughs> here's the thing that I'd like to talk about because I think this is a big thing in the community right now. Before we move on to your take on Airbnb, can I just say one thing about the Malaga thing? And brother, yeah, I feel your pain. I mean, yeah. this is it's awful. You don't want to be that person. But what I don't understand is what's with the professional cleaning person who's being compensated being offended about the trash situation? Is that where the line is? You know, I'm cool with the bathroom. I'm cool with the sheets. I'm cool with the floors. I draw the line at this trash situation. Well, I mean, to be sympathetic to them, like trash in Europe is pretty easy. Like, <laughs> especially in Barcelona, there's like a trash can on every corner. Yeah. Like everybody takes their trash out like every 10 minutes. So I think it might be a little offensive to like gather trash in your apartment in Europe. Like maybe it's a, you're inviting pests into the building. Like this is a collective thing. For like our European listeners, it. you got to let us, we're on the rocks over here. We got two <laughs> negative reviews between the two of us and we got to turn this thing around. But you had some commentary about Airbnb in general. Are you pro, are you using it more or less in 2023 and 24? Less for sure. And I think a lot of people in the community are too. Watching people in the DC and on different social media platforms, like talk about their experiences and like just in person too. I'm like, Hey, you're going to uh, Prague for a weekend. Are you staying in a hotel or Airbnb? And like a lot of people say hotel now that I know. And I think the reason is pretty clear. And this is a good example of that is like the friction of Airbnb at this point with the service fees, with the cleaning, with the, am I going to show up and like have to wait for somebody? Like what are the rules? Like all this stuff. It's difficult. It's really difficult and it's challenging to stay in an Airbnb sometimes. You know, when we come back to Barcelona, I rent from the same company that I found on Airbnb like six years ago, just because like the apartment is like not maybe the best or whatever, but like, I don't want any friction. I want to know that my place is like 
taken care of. I want to know when I write an email saying like today, the door lock is broken, that somebody's going to be there right away and all this stuff. Airbnb has become a lot of friction. I think a lot of people's lives. I'll say this too. And this maybe relates to your experience as well. In the early days of Airbnb, I mean, I was a very early adopter and Airbnb, it was only you renting from someone else. And like they moved out, they went to their parents' house. They were there when you checked in. They like had a map for you, yeah. a bottle of wine. Emphasis on the B&B element. Yes. Yeah. It was very much like a person-to-person experience. Here's what's happened, which I totally think is disingenuous at this point, is you have now most, I think most Airbnbs or a lot of Airbnbs are now businesses, right? But then you have a person acting as if it's their individual home and then treating you as such when it's convenient. And this is what I think happened with the trash thing. You can correct me or not, but it's like, you're running a business in the olden days, I wouldn't write a negative review because this was like your house and your side income and maybe how you sent your kid to like private school or whatever. So like, I want to respect that. Like I, I can have a conversation with you about the trash thing. We don't need to leave each other negative reviews. You right. know, let's sort it out. Now you have individuals running businesses acting like individuals when it's convenient. So you're hesitant to write the negative review, but you shouldn't be, I don't think. Yeah. Because this is a business and I should be able to treat it as such because I'm staying here and it sucks. Yeah. I don't know. Was that your experience? Was this know. guy acting I mean, like... I mean, you're paying a premium for these properties. And can you imagine you're paying for some four or five star hotel and they're like, you know, great customer. I, I didn't really like his attitude. And it's going to try and follow around. Airbnb sets it up so that it's like game theory. You know, you're both incentivized to give private feedback. So here's the punchline. I'm not even going to mention how gross the situation was with the bathroom. Just imagine gross bathroom... And it was a a maintenance issue. Yeah. Guess where I left that response? Private. 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 Because that's kind of Airbnb stayer that I am. I think I do the same thing, but here's here's my call to action for everybody. I don't think we should do that anymore. Especially if you figured out that it's a business, like if they have like multiple properties, leave it publicly. Leave it publicly. Because you've done nothing wrong. You want to take that pain out into the world now. Yeah. (laughs) 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 all right i think it's fair let's get moving on to the next topic let us know your thoughts on airbnb honestly i still love the platform i think that's part of the reason i wanted to be a part of this community it is like this weird mix of community and like mutual understandings versus it's a business too and so it's fascinating it's a fascinating setup anyway i got more stories there i'm gonna move on we could do a whole airbnb episode Here's a topic that came up in the, a few times in the past few weeks. Is the term location independent dead? You know, I heard a couple separate people say basically, yeah, it's not that important anymore. And I actually heard another person say that that's specifically what resonated with them relative to other entrepreneurial content. It's like, oh, wow, location independence. That's my thing. But we find ourselves saying it a little bit less nowadays. I'm curious. What's your thoughts on this? Table stakes at this point. I feel like it's almost a given, especially if you're like starting a digital business or if you have a digital business. In the beginning, it was like such a big deal to us. I think part of it is like our background where we like grew up and like how like me personally, you know, I didn't travel until like it was in my early 20s and it was like such a big deal, you know, and so it was like you want to sew the flag on your backpack, you know? Yeah. 
And uh, now, like as people are starting businesses and running digitally native businesses, I don't know of a better term. You've been using that one. Online businesses. Online businesses. Um, but like, it's Cash less of a big businesses. deal. It's especially less of a big deal because now a lot of people at JOBs are also location independent. This thing happened through COVID where it's like, yeah, work anywhere. Sure, a lot of people have to come back in the office, but I feel like it's such a given at this point that we would be location independent with these businesses that I almost feel like it's not even worth talking about. I feel like it's like worth moving past mm. and, and trying to figure out like what the next thing is. So for us, and maybe just for me, it was like a thing to accomplish. Now I feel like it's there's not even a barrier there, even if you have a job. So it's very easy to solve that problem. Yeah. So like what's the next thing that we're wanting to accomplish? And I don't feel like it's location independence because it's kind of sorted. Yeah. Back in the day, the idea was is like, okay, well, wealthy people are kind of location independent anyway, right? Because they got margin and management, the two M's. You, you got a money spinning off from your franchise. You take the family to Europe for the summer, call it a day. But the idea for location independent movement was, well, how can those first dollars be location independent? And so now we're looking at different business models like affiliate, online income, you know, remote agencies, stuff like that, productized service. And I think there's like a couple things like for the younger generation who are more digitally native, they sort of look at this and say like, yeah, I mean, of course I'm going to start an online, as you guys used to say, online business. We don't even say that anymore, but that used to be a thing you'd say. You'd say we're online business. Mm -hmm. And as the tools have gotten better, it's just been sort of assumed that that's what a business is. Like they're sort of synonymous, but there's this final piece, which is I think the appetite for owning location dependent businesses is higher than ever. Well, that's a different way to put it, but they own them location independently. Okay. So yeah, I mean, what you're talking about here is like turning a location dependent business to location independent for the owners and managers, which I think is like a trend right now. That's pretty hot that people are doing, which is essentially like, name your local business and like put your back office in the Philippines yeah. and essentially don't have to be there. And I think that this, that's going to become even more common because for obvious reasons, which is like, number one, you can increase your margins. Number two, like as our crowd, I think gets older as we get older, they're finding more intelligent ways to deploy capital and to like buy assets and own things basically. And like, this is a good way to do it because those people are retiring. So I think that there's going to be a lot of innovation in like, quote, local businesses where this type of thing happens. That being said, like, I think the quest for location independence these days is relatively easy for what it's worth. Fair enough. Yeah, you're capturing when I think when we like started this pod in 2009, when you looked around at most of the people in your social network, most of them were making their money location dependently, you know, and this this transition was made all kinds of sense. Whereas now when I look at my social circle, a great percentage of them do have that remote work at minimum, like you're saying. Because one of the fascinating things like, I haven't thought about is like some of the most location dependent people strangely are like these tech communities. They're like dependent on like New York and San Francisco and Austin. And then they're like, did you hear that we can like use the money that we're making to like buy car washes? Or something, you know what I mean? And like they're actually looking to that as a gateway to like more freedom versus like a lot of their earning salaries depend on them being at least close-ish to these like major centers of innovation and money of finance. And so the idea that you could just 
be completely divorced from, say, that time zone or whatever is not really an option, even though it's a technology-based yeah, I mean, I think there's all kinds of interesting ways to approach this. And there's like people are taking all all kinds of different approaches. When you said that, like I thought about Y Combinator. And I think it's like interesting, like just like on the surface, I don't I don't really I don't know him, but I like see the way he operates on Twitter. The way that like Paul Graham like insists that like in person is like way more effective, way more robust, and like companies that are just starting out should be in person. In a lot of ways I kind of agree with that. Yeah. But then Paul Graham himself like lives in England, you know? So yeah. he's like, he's not wanting to do it himself at this point in his career, you know? But like he insists still that like people should be in sure. uh, in San Francisco. That's what FU money will do for you. Yeah, exactly. I, I still think location is this powerful, powerful mechanism that anybody can leverage to build a better business. The other piece is like maybe location independence for a while there had an identity usage. This is the type of founder that I am, like not quite digital nomad, not, you know, that kind of thing. But nowadays it feels more like an attribute to the type of cash flow. So it's like, is the cash flow robust? Is it repeatable? Is it profitable? Is it location independent? Right. And it's just like on your role playing character card, it's one to 10 how location independent is. If you're driving sales and growth for an agency, for example, you probably don't want to spend the winter in Asia. But if you run a, a network of affiliate sites, who cares? And that's a 10 out of 10 in terms of location independence. So anywho, the thought I put it out there is location independence is a term still relevant. I don't know. Let us know. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. All right, let's get moving on to the heart of the episode. In the last couple of weeks, me and you have been talking to so, so, so many seven plus figure founders through events and through DC Black. And we're going to try seven and eight, seven and eight, six, some sixes too. Don't forget about the sixes. <laughs> Today, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, sort of two common challenges that these founders are facing and some ways to think about or address them. And uh, we're going to start with the big one that you came to me with. We're gonna, I'm going to call it the wheel of despair. Yeah, this is not what I named it. <laughs> I think I called it the hub and spoke problem. You called it the hub and spoke problem. So the hub and spoke problem or, or the wheel of despair, if you so desire. We got to stick to one, if we're being honest. I mean, this is a podcast here. We're trying to put out content. Something needs to stick with people on the ride home. You know, is it wheel of despair or the hub and spoke? You, sir, have chosen the wheel of despair. I think it's more impactful. So we'll just go with wheel of despair at this point. <laughs> we might change it in, a, in another episode. Well, what was impactful to me is like your passion for it because you were sitting me down and you were like, look, this is so endemic. This is a problem I'm seeing time and time again. Lay it out for us. Okay. So it was interesting to think about this problem, just like where it starts and where it falls off. Starts in six and seven figure businesses and it like goes all the way through seven figure businesses. It seems like to me and then it starts to fall off on the eight figure businesses. So essentially the problem is this is like if you look at a company, you have the founders in the middle of the wheel, which is the hub. And then you have the team members as the spokes. And most of the time, 
I'd say nine times out of 10, it's crazy how often this happens. Nine times out of 10, most of the direction, information, strategy, leadership, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, comes from the information comes from the center of the wheel, which is the CEO or the founder. And then depending on how effective they are, like that information kind of goes out to the spokes. The problem though, is that as the spoke leads from the rim, just follow me here, as the spoke leads back from the rim to the hub, then it has to go through the hub back out to another spoke. So meaning like employees aren't talking with each other, the information isn't moving around freely in the organization, everything is dependent on the founder. And not that the founder can't take two weeks of vacation, but they can in some cases, but most of the time the business could not operate without the founder. Can you think of an example of how this structure of hub and spoke can break down like a key process in a business? Pretty much every single process in the business. I mean, that's why it feels like such an epidemic to me, which is like, if you're so reliant on this hub and spoke model, and it's easy to see why you got there because the founder founded the company that came up with the idea, did all the jobs in the beginning, like the marketing, the engineering, like every single job the founder was doing. And then essentially they didn't delegate the entire process. And there's a lot of different reasons why this happens. I think the first reason is like they couldn't afford a real person to do the marketing. So they like hired a a junior marketer, a halfway marketer, but like it wasn't director level and not a real person. Not a real person, but <laughs> this is why this problem starts to get solved at eight figures is because you start to hire like actual professionals, yeah. right? That's an interesting comment there, which is that so many of us are struggling to build businesses essentially with team members who don't really in a meaningful way know what they're doing, right? Like it's all this talk about SOPs and systems and outsourcing to so-and-so and where and where. It's basically like, yeah, we're just trying to get by by like teaching people what we know and hoping they do a good job versus when you're at the eight figure level, you bring in somebody who commands a market rate at a tech company and they're just, they're running their skill set on your platform. I first saw this and I guess I probably called it something different when we sold our e-commerce business and like everybody was so surprised that it wasn't like founder dependent, you know, they're like, yeah, right. I mean, that was a huge takeaway for me is like when the person finally bought that business, we finally convinced them like, I'm not important. You're not important. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is a really good asset to own because of that. And I think like that was the first time I saw this come up. And then I didn't think about it much until we started doing some coaching in our business and we started and we launched Black basically and just started listening to like everybody's problems and experiences and like what they're going through. And these six and seven figure companies are so founder dependent in a way that like it makes it so the business doesn't scale. It makes it so the people in the business aren't as effective as it could be. It makes it very hard for these companies to scale because, and I think we're going to go into this next, but like the growth comes from the founder. And if the founder is like communicating all this information and like making sure all these divisions are working and like all the information is like coming through them, how could you possibly focus on growth at that point? Your job is to like basically hold the company together. I think it's a big issue to solve. So there's a million ways to try and address this problem. But the thing I'm working on in my writing is something I'm calling tempos, like cadence is the common way to think about it. But it all starts from actually knowing what the key information in the company is. And for me, that's your strategic vision. 
And so that comes in long form writing and we use slides too, but take a tip from Jeff Bezos. We actually had his right hand man on the show a few years ago talking about this process of the six page memo. And I think that it's remarkably unclear to most team members what the company is actually doing. Mission, vision, values, that ain't enough. Actually talking about what are the key strategic aims of the company in the next six months, creating a document that's clear as day that everybody can read, that's the first step in having any kind of meaningful cadence because then it's like, well, what are we talking about when we talk? We're talking about the strategic vision of the company. And so what I'd like to do is like suggest that instead of having this wheel of despair, as you described, we have an elegant champagne waterfall, which is that strategy is like the champagne bottle at the top and you pour it down into the top at this first strategic document and it just cascades down into these other cadences or tempos. And so that's going to look like you're going to have an executive team meeting quarterly where you're revisiting that strategic vision and making sure everybody understands the priorities and who owns the priorities. That's going to come up quarterly on your team scorecards, which is another tempo. So every individual is meeting on every quarter about what their rocks are or what their key projects are and how that, what their key areas of responsibility are, how that relates to your strategic vision. You're going to check in on that financially, something we've added, a monthly business review. Every month, we're looking over with our finance team now, are these key strategic aims being met when the rubber meets the road in the dollars and cents? Then the next step is to address this on a weekly basis with your team calls, and we call it Friday Slides. But essentially, if you're familiar with traction, this is like your scoreboard situation where you're taking a look at all the key metrics in the business. But we're also talking about key strategic aims and ideas every Friday on our team call. So the final piece is if you're brave enough, which a lot of us aren't, we do this daily tasks on stand-up calls every single day. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. <laughs> it's not that much like once you set up the systems. I mean, we've been working on this for the last year almost. But like the goal is what I said at the beginning of this, which was like, you can't be in the middle of your company starving everybody for information. You can't be the person that stops the company from moving when you stop telling people what the other person said. Like when the information doesn't flow through you, it's a great thing. And you know, your champagne analogy, I think is good, which is like, the champagne flows down. Yeah, of course, like some gets on the tablecloth or whatever, but like most of it makes it down to the bottom cups if you <laughs> arrange it right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because that leads really nicely to this second kind of, again, these are common challenges that come up in these conversations with seven plus figure founders. The other one is the growth paradox, which you alluded to and has been referred to in a bunch of different ways throughout the literature, but it's essentially this. When you reach a certain revenue point, it's different for every kind of company in every industry. But sometimes it's like kind of mid six figures or like when you start to have more than five team members. As a founder, you start to kind of get this thing where you need to now grow the apparatus of the business. Part of which is those tempos I'm talking about before. Part of which is like HR and onboarding, recruiting. Like there's all this kind of stuff that you start to have to do to the business itself. Whereas Hub and Spoke kicks ass for like, if you're just like a super IC and you have three assistants, Hub and Spoke is great. Yeah. It works great. It's a great way to grow a business. It's not a great way to scale a business necessarily. And that's the growth paradox. So now as you've got this apparatus around you, 
Now you're not focusing on the one thing that'll grow the business, which isn't going to be your meetings. It's going to be the growth that you do in all the time you saved from having had the meetings. And that's the paradox here. I had this kind of realization. It felt like profound to me that I was talking to all these founders seeking growth and they were, had these amazing businesses. And that there's like, oh, maybe I'll do this agency thing or maybe I'll hire this person or I'm implementing scale up or I'm, I'm doing this. And I thought to myself, well, they all want to grow. And the only person in nine out of 10 of these businesses that are, say, less than $5 million in revenue, it's on you. And by you, I mean the founder. The founder is nine times out of 10 in charge and responsible for growth until about the $5 million mark. That's just a, that's a crass, irresponsible generalization. But that's why I think it felt so profound when I was speaking with all these founders that kind of like had all these different focuses about what might be that next step for their business. And I just thought, whatever that next step is, it's on your desk. And so if you're spending all your time doing traction or taking quizzes or going to conferences or whatever it is, just know that nine times out of 10, that next step of growth is coming on your desk. What does that mean? I see a lot of founders that are kind of like exhausted by their current growth strategy, whether that's like flying around to conferences or doing cold calls or cold outreach or whatever. You might need a new strategy. You might need to build a sales team. You might need to rebuild an outreach and appointment team. You might need to build a repeating marketing channel. Typically, it's not going to be an agency that does that for you. I mean, an agency can help you double down. But I do think that that's why there's this dynamic of like all these marketing agencies right. like following around <laughs> founders because this is the growth paradox. It is the challenge that we face. And if you don't feel it in your bones, how you're going to get that next million into your business, sit with that. That's your challenge. You know, your challenge isn't happy team. Your challenge isn't traction. Your challenge isn't that cool thing that you're going to do with the t-shirts next week. Your challenge is the next million. That's the top challenge for companies that want to grow. And it sits squarely on your desk as the founder. I don't know, just like looking at that directly and saying you're responsible for that answer in nine out of 10 cases. I think that's a powerful thing for founders to recognize if provided they want to grow. I wrote down some notes here. I said, uh, often taking the move to expand into a new market or pricing tier that's often something that your team members aren't going to do. They could have all the information in the world, you know, at the seven-figure level. They're often not going to go do that for you. Sometimes, maybe. Sometimes increasing operational velocity can be this growth strategy, but not often. Often it's going to be aggressive marketing, repeatable channels, aggressive sales, um, aggressive deal-making, strategic thinking, Tough stuff. I'd say tough, but also the the word that I would use is like brave. You have to be like brave. It's the same thing that like got you to start the company. It's like you took a leap of bravery at some point. You know, it's like I'm going to take another leap of bravery when I'm going to try and figure out how to scale to the next million. And yeah, I think you're right, Dan. I mean, in the last couple of years, this has really hit hard for us, I think, or me especially, which is like you look around at your payroll and I think if you're me, you look around at your payroll and you're like, gosh, man, look at all this payroll. Like, can't somebody grow this thing for me? Like, what am I paying everybody for? You know, it's like, come on. But what you're paying people for is to like run the playbook that you put in place to like meet your goals. And now it's time to go out, come up maybe with a new playbook and then maybe with a new set of goals and then with another team or with more people. 
right? But I, I think like for me especially, this one hit hard because it was like, well, can't everybody else do this? Like, yeah. And I think at a certain point, the answer is yes. And both with the uh, growth paradox and with the wheel of despair, I think it happens like at eight figures. Let's start to talk to more eight-figure companies that are joining DC Black and like more of this is happening at the eight-figure level. Well, it's like, yeah, director level. It's like, yeah, they came over from Meta or they came over from Yelp or whatever. And like, they're really good at this. This is what they've done for the last five years. Like, yes, their salary, their job security, everything depends on them like growing this strategy because that's what they do. But for these six and seven figure companies, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right to say like, this comes from the founder. It's our job. It's what we're uniquely suited for. Now, you can also say too, like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to continue to be the craftsman in my business. You got to make sure that like you have a business that you can afford to do that in, you know? Yeah. Because in some cases you can't afford to do that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the challenges with the tidy little lifestyle business is that it's fragile as well. And that's something that's really kind of become apparent to me over the past five years. You can have a really nice cash flow that's leveraged in terms of time and location and you got everything set up, but it can be wiped out from something like COVID or it can completely change from an uh, industry dynamic. And the bottom line is the smaller your company is, the less robust it is. That's typically the case. And so that's an argument for having at least an eye to this growth vision. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, what got me here won't get me there. I don't know how to grow. And that's fine, but you know, your retainer to the marketing agency isn't going to answer the question for you, but advisors can. Bringing in experts can. Challenging yourself intellectually to own the answer to that next million question is something that I, and I love that you use the term bravery and that you're talking about the vulnerability, how it makes you feel, because I think that's why it felt profound. Like you can kind of feel the either excitement or fear, someone in that range of like all this other stuff is easier. You know, when you open up the book Traction, it gives you a quiz to tell you how great your business is, you know, or how operationally sound your business is. And there's this idea that if everybody goes to this meeting and everybody does this and everybody does that, the implication is that those are the questions worth answering in your business. But the secret, the secret is that it's not. That the question you need to answer is where's the next million in revenue coming from? That is the question that needs answered. And I think that's where the bravery, the excitement, and the fear come in is like, you don't know all the time and you got to figure it out. And that's your job as a founder. Can you just write a new book here soon, Dan? So we can stop saying the T word. Music I'm, to my ears. I'm very, I'm very tired of saying the T word in this because it's come up a lot. Let, in me, this grab, podcast let me grab my quill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Barcelona. I don't know if it's got a book writing vibe, man. I need oh, to go to the gosh. mountains or something. Here we go. <laughs> What's the budget? That's it. To recap. The two challenges that we're seeing out there, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the wheel of despair. Ian's talking about how the lack of information flow through a company can hamper its ability to operate well. And then, of course, the growth paradox, which is this idea of how running the business itself interferes with the key responsibility of a founder, which is figuring out that next growth strategy. That's it. That's it for this week. We got to do some growth stuff. We got to... <laughs> Got to, I'm going to grow some parts of my body. I'm hungry. Let's go eat lunch. <laughs> it's good to have you. I'm just so excited for a summer of podcasting uh, here in Barcelona in person. That's it. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.